Welcome to The New Intellectuals. My name is Jordan Camp. I'm Director of Research at the People's Forum, a movement incubator in New York City. This podcast is made possible through a collaboration between the People's Forum and Pluto Press. In this episode, I speak with historian Andrew Zimmerman about his edited volume of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' writings, The Civil War in the United States, out from international publishers. You can find The New Intellectuals every month wherever you subscribe to your podcast, as well as on Pluto and TPF's websites. Without further ado, Andrew Zimmerman. I'm really delighted to be here with Andrew Zimmerman. He's a professor of history at George Washington University. He's the author of Alabama and Africa, Booker T. Washington, The German Empire and the Globalization of the New South. His work appears in many influential venues, The History of the Present, Journal of the Civil War Era, American Historical Review, among others. And we're here today to talk about his edited volume, The Civil War in the United States by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, which was published by International Publishers. And he just gave a talk about it last night in a seminar uh, here at the People's Forum. So really thrilled to have you here. And I I wanna thank you, first of all, for the just tremendous work that went into this volume. Um, It's a labor of, I think, love and scholarship. And, you know, it's a collection of Marx and Engels' writings on the American Civil War. It features correspondences yeah. between themselves, between, you know, key figures like Joseph Weidemeyer, as well as their journalism and, and writing. So how did you come to the project? Well, I got interested in, I've always been interested in Marx and Marxism, and I started getting interested in the history of the United States and particularly the struggle against slavery and the struggle by U.S. elites to continue slavery too and or continue versions of slavery. And um, I learned from reading this earlier, there's an earlier edition of of Marx and Engels' writings on the Civil War. And I was really surprised that um, they even wrote about the Civil War. And it turns out that I learned a lot about the Civil War from reading their writings, but also a lot about Marx and Engels from reading the writings. Suddenly, you know, the the Civil War and the struggle against slavery suddenly appears really important in, in their writings even before the Civil War, but then especially in Capital and afterwards. And so that was what got me interested in it. And then international publishers, they wanted to do a new edition of an earlier version of the of the writings and asked them if I wanted to. And I said, of course, I'd be honored. That'd be wonderful. Like how great. And then it, cha- you know, it changed both my view of Marx and Engels and the Civil War. So it's been wonderful. Well, you know, you offer this really, I think, helpful introduction to both the volume and then I believe nine parts of the book to offer important, I think, historical context to interpret Mm -hmm. these texts. And one of the things you note is that, as you were just saying, the the first volume was published by international publishers in 1937 by Brooklyn College professor Herbert Murray. Mm -hmm. And it was published under a pseudonym, which I hope you'll say more about. But even despite this, he's fired, he's blacklisted, and yeah. in this you know, important act of solidarity, you dedicate the book to the memory yes. of him. And so who, who was Herbert Moray, and, and why did you think it was important to dedicate this volume to him? Well, Herbert Moray was a, said a Brooklyn College professor. He'd finished his PhD at Columbia University just a few years before, and he was probably almost surely part of the Communist Party and was certainly knew he would be suspected of being a member of the Communist Party for publishing with international publishers and for publishing 
this work on the Civil War, or the, the works of Marx and Engels on the Civil War. When he did publish it, he published under the name Richard N. N. Male, and um, I don't know how he, how he pronounced it, but he chose the last name, the N-E-N for Engels, M-A for Marx, and L-E for Lenin. So he was, he was, he had a pseudonym, but it was, you know, he was still, I imagine that as a way to encourage himself, you know, to say that he's not really lying about himself that much. He's secretly saying who he is. But the pseudonym didn't work well enough, and there was a Red Scare New York State Commission studying um, communism in New York education, and he and a bunch of other Brooklyn College professors were fired for being communists. And particularly what they focused on was the efforts, they said, to show that great American figures, including Abraham Lincoln, were forerunners of, they said, forerunners of the Reds. And so that was, and that was part of what he was trying to show, is that he was trying to show there's this communist tradition, a U.S. communist tradition as well. And he was, and he was trying to work on how we understand U.S. history. And um, he lost his job, and uh, he, later the, the Communist Party got him a job, I believe in the research division of a union, and I can't remember which one right now. And, um, but yeah, he was pushed out of academia, as were, you know, a lot of people. Sure. And um, I really felt honored to be following in his footsteps and working on the same project, and also really grateful for people like him who struggled for some greater academic freedom, although, as we've talked about, it's important to remember that very few people enjoy academic freedom such as it is. And um, yeah, I wanted to put his name on the book. You know, he couldn't put his name for that reason. And I thought, so I didn't dedicate it to Richard, his pseudonym, I dedicated it to Herbert Moray, the, the, the person who gave up his livelihood for this political work. And, you know, I was, I was hoping I could locate relatives or descendants of Moray and give them the book, but I haven't been able to, but who knows, maybe. If anybody knows a descendant, I would love to, to get in touch. It's a powerful and important kind of break with anti-communism yeah. Yeah. in the academy, I think. And, you know, as is the entire volume, I mean, you locate Marx and Engels in this internationalist mm -hmm. exile uh, community. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about that. I mean, you have these astonishing facts, yeah. uh, you know, about 25% of the Union Army are these exiles. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's stories here about how Joseph Weidemeyer publishes in New York for the first time the, the Brumaire. And yeah. so how did Marx and Engels, or, you know, writing in England, mm. experience in this revolutionary exile community mm. shape their analysis of the relationship between slavery and capitalism on one hand and the political possibilities of the U.S. Civil War on the other? The revolutionaries of often lived had to live in exile because of persecution at home. And um, Marx and Engels lived in exile most of their most of their lives, and um, the uh, the there was a big wave of exiles after the 1848 revolutions, when there were broad uprisings across Europe, and there was an important component of communists, members of the Communist League, the organization that Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto for. And they played an important role in the revolution in its most militant final phases. Engels actually carried arms in that, in that part of the revolution. And when the revolution was crushed, they all had to go into exile. Some people got pardons, but the communists didn't get pardons. The communists were under either the threat of either prison or death sentences for what they'd done in taking part in the revolution. And so they went to exile first to London because that was close enough to Europe that they could get back if the revolution started again. And they formed an exile scene and they spent a lot of time in the 1850s talking about the revolution that had just 
happened and had been defeated and debating why it had been defeated and developing this really interesting, fascinating intellectual scene, but also a social scene. And as the exile dragged on, many of the revolutionaries couldn't afford to remain in London and had to flee to the United States. Um, not because they wanted to go to the United States necessarily, but because they could make a better living there. But they kept up correspondence with Marx and with Engels. And before there was, you know, there was an international organization, but there was also just an international of writing letters. And they wrote letters reporting about the United States to Marx and Engels. Marx and Engels wrote back to them and giving them advice. And it was, it was a really just interesting informal correspondence. And when the exiles first got to the United States, they thought the only thing good about it was that they wouldn't get arrested there and they could afford to live there. But then as they started seeing the growing anti-slavery movement in the United States, they got involved in it from their own, from their own perspective. They brought on a communist approach, an approach that was skeptical of constitutions, of private property, to the anti-slavery struggle. And then when the Civil War broke out, they rushed to the Union cause. There was, it was about one in four Union soldiers were born overseas. One in 10 were born in one of the states that became Germany later on. And the majority of those were not members of the Communist League, but they were a very important intellectual group. And also many communists were, were officers in the, in the Civil War. And people like August Willich or Franz Siegel, and they played an important role, not just in participating and contributing to the war, but in transforming the war and being one of the forces who recognized the uprising of enslaved people as the most important factor in the war. And never mind what the Lincoln administration wanted to do, um, they were going to work with enslaved revolutionaries, and they did. But what if you could say, you know, a little about what you think their work as intellectuals teaches us? about the, the role of the intellectual and yeah. radical political and in communist movements? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, one thing is that they come to the United States and they go into exile in general in defeat. So they're not coming to export their big successful models because they don't have successful models. They come to the United States with communist questions and they learn a lot. They look around, they study, they, they you know, they write, they, they write about all kinds of aspects of, of US life, and they try to think about it, their own situation, think about the revolutionary situation, and learn from what's happening in the United States, and particularly from enslaved people working against slavery. And you know, I think that the things that made them so good and important, both in contributing to the overthrow of slavery in the United States, but also contributing to the development of Marxism and of communism more is an interest in what was going on around them, a willingness to, you know, to think about it and to make guesses sometimes and to be wrong sometimes. And I think to learn from, from what they were doing and to learn from, to participate in the movements, the movements that are going on around them and to learn from those movements and to try to contribute to those movements too, but, to, but also to, to learn from them, to really see a two-way relationship between what they're doing and the movements that they're participating in. And so one of the fascinating things you argue is that kind of dialectic between learning yeah. to listen to the movement and then developing new work yeah. actually shapes the formation of the First International yes. and also the theoretical work, Capital Volume One, yes. uh, the Civil War in France. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, so one thing, maybe the, the, the first place to start is even earlier with the 18th Brumaire, right. which... Um, was published in New York for the first time right. by Joseph Weidemeyer right. 
in German for the German language press. And it's a text that analyzes the, really analyzes the ends of the end of the 1848 revolutions, the rise of this new kind of modern dictator in Napoleon III. And what it is also is an encouragement to revolutionaries. If you read, you know, a lot of it, the part, the, the bulk of it is about the events of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, or the Napoleon III's rise to power. But the first pages are an encouragement to despondent exiled revolutionaries saying the revolution fails, it fails again, it criticizes itself, and that's definitely what it was doing. Mm -hmm. um, it goes back to its conclusions, it starts again. It's really advocating to embrace the learning, to embrace that what it means to be a revolutionary isn't to you know, enforce your program on the people, but it's to, it's to just embrace that it's complicated and that, that defeats are only temporary and that we have to criticize ourselves and think, think, think through these things. The great line is, you know, this, the poetry of the revolution will come from the future. And that means, you know, don't, don't come here with fixed ideas. Marx and Engels were writing back and forth with their comrades. They were also reading the U.S. press and getting really interested in the struggle against slavery and in the kinds of political forms that were happening. They didn't know how revolution was going to happen when they, you know, the, the, the model for revolution that they had in the Communist Manifesto most people agreed had failed in the uh, in the 1848 revolutions. Marx and Engels weren't quite so sure, but but most of their most of their comrades thought this was not the model of going to this, the bourgeois revolution, bringing a lot of progress, and then the proletarian revolution. And so the question is, so what's it going to be? And Marx and Engels had already written about, or Marx had already written about slavery as a part of capitalism. That's one of the, I think, misconceptions about Marx's view of slavery that. It wasn't part of capitalism. Marx knew, as we all know, that slavery existed before capitalism, and that wasn't part of capitalism. But in capitalism, slavery, and particularly slavery of people of, of African people, was Marx says it's as central as machinery, as credit, as any other aspect of capitalism. Um, so he already knew that, and then seeing the forms of struggle against slavery made him understand different ways that revolution could happen, different ways that capital works. So. In Capital Volume One, he says, you know, he says in, in the preface that the American Civil War gave the signal to the European working class, just as the Revolutionary War of 1776 gave the signal to the European middle classes. He says, um, and for him, you know, one thing it taught him is that revolution is possible, that it works, that struggle against domination of workers, um, whether in, as enslaved workers in the case of the American Civil War, but as wage workers also is part of the revolution. It's, the where, it's where the revolution comes from. Um, and that revolution can be mixed up with war. It can be mixed up in all kinds of complicated political, it's, it will necessarily be mixed up with military and political situations. And it's the, and Marx and Engels were trying to just figure out what it meant for the Civil War. But then in Capital, Marx tries to figure out, you know, practical answers. So questions like, you know, one of the key sections in Capital is the question about the struggle over the, the length of the working day. And, you know, one answer that you might think a Marxist might make is that, you know, who cares whether it's eight hours or 10 hours, it's all exploitation, or 12 hours or 16 hours, it's all exploitation. Um, and the point is to overthrow exploitation. And Marx is very clear that the point is to overthrow exploitation, and we do it by struggling over control in the workplace and over the political struggle over the workplace. And that's certainly not only about the struggle against slavery. It's also about the eight-hour day movement that emerged really strongly in the United States after the, after the Civil War. But it's also about the struggle against all forms of domination of labor. I think that's, that was key for Marx and Engels. And also just a confidence, just you know, going from a despondent 1850s to a 
jubilant 1860s and 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Civil War did not produce the socialist revolution that they had hoped it would, um, and that many hoped it would. But they didn't say, well, that didn't succeed. They looked for that paradigm of revolution elsewhere, and they saw it in the Paris Commune. Right. Marx wrote a book called The Civil War in France about the Paris Commune, and he talks about the, the reaction against the Paris Commune as the slaveholders' rebellion, which is what doesn't really make sense, unless you know that he called the Confederacy the slaveholders' rebellion right. also. Yes. And it's full of language comparing the Paris Commune to the American Civil War as a new revolutionary event. And in that book, he says, there's a wonderful line where he says, the war of the enslaved against their enslavers, the only justifiable war in history. And I think he's also reflecting on, you know, when he wrote about the Civil War, how important it was. He wasn't trying to glorify war. He was trying to glorify the war of the enslaved against their enslavers. Yes. That last, that last part of the quote is, is, yeah. is what's significant. Yes. And I mean, I just want to, you know, so you mentioned Joseph Weidemeyer, who published the first edition of uh, the Brumaire uh, in New York. Um, you have exchanges here that appear in English for the first time. You yes. did the translations of those yeah. works, drawing on your first field. So I don't yeah. know if you want to say more about Weidemeyer as He's a character. He's so interesting. So Weidemeyer, like a lot of these Civil War, um, he became a colonel in a Missouri artillery regiment. And like a lot of these Civil War German communist officers had been a Prussian officer in the, before 1848 and had left the um, Prussian service because they were hoping to radicalize the Prussian military and it was kind of going in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So they left and ended up in exile. Um, he ended up living in Missouri and part of a German communist scene around the United States. He ended up, he lectured a lot. He gave a lecture that I only found his lecture notes and I don't have it in this, in this volume, but lecturing about to Germans about the importance of opposing slavery as a form of private property and as a communist struggle, that, that slavery specifically was something that, that communists had to, had to oppose in the United States. And um, he became a really important intellectual, but also he was an artillery officer in Missouri during the Civil War. And he wrote a lot back and forth to, especially to Engels. Engels also, you know, was a fascinated with military technical stuff. So they have correspondence about artillery, kinds of artillery they use in the Civil War and things too. But Weidemeyer, after the war, um, wrote a really important article about Reconstruction, where he saw, you know, what was happening with Reconstruction, in fact, which was not leading to black freedom, but leading to new kinds of coercion. And he said that what needs to absolutely happen is we need to have land redistribution and um, total civil equality between black people and white people. And if we don't, you know, it's not gonna be emancipation. This was much more radical than anything that was happening, coming from the United States during, during Reconstruction, from the US government. He has this great line, he says, we need to reconstruct Reconstruction. Mm. And I think that's a really, powerful, powerful line. And it's, you know, it's a nice dialectical move. You always have got to, whatever the, the official form of liberation, we need twice that much. It's great. I, I want to ask about another character yeah. that you end the book with, yeah. uh, W.B. Du Bois. Yeah. He republishes an uh, essay that was written on African-Americans and Marxism for the crisis, published yeah. in 33. 33, yeah. Right, two years before his magnum opus, um, Black Reconstruction. And in that um, text, which is just amazing, he says, we have to understand that Marx was on the side of the abolitionist democracy yes. of the Republicans, and he situates Marx on the, you know, the right side of history, on the, yeah. on the side of the freedom struggle. So, talk about how Du Bois's analysis of the Civil War informs your understanding of, of it as a working class revolution. Yeah. I mean, for 
For Marx, it was a working class revolution also. And Marx saw the importance of enslaved people rebelling against their slavery, but he also didn't make that as central to his account of the Civil War as I think his own theory suggested. Um, du Bois, in that article, writes about Marx's writings on the Civil War and said, it's a very like, nice way of saying, you know, Marx didn't exactly know about the situation of African Americans, so we have to modify Marx in that regard. And we see that in 19, the 1935 Black Reconstruction, where he puts, you know, for Marx, the, it's often like working class white people in the North, sometimes it's enslaved people, but sometimes it's even Abraham Lincoln as someone that Marx sees as of a working class background. And Du Bois says, no, the working class of the United States that overthrew slavery in the Civil War was the, the black worker, the enslaved black worker. And they carried out, he says, a general strike. And he makes a really important argument and then says, you know, and that he says it was the first, it was the most important communist revolution before the Russian Revolution. Um, and he also points, he says, you know, he's not idealizing the United States. He says it was undone by a counter-revolution of property. That's right. But Du Bois really takes, I think, the potential that's in Marx for an understanding of the Civil War that centers on a working class revolution that is an enslaved and black working class rather than a, a white free working class um, and centers it on that that real the you know the 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 proletariat of the south and of the united states and um, takes marx's categories beyond marx sort of in the way weidemeyer wanted a reconstruction of reconstruction yeah. du bois does a a more marxist reading of the civil war than marx does and i think that is just so important for the development of of marx and so one of the things this, if there's a, a story in this book of Marx's writings, it's Marx and Engels coming to understand the Civil War as a working class revolution, coming to understand the working class revolution differently than the Civil War, but not taking it to its you know complete logical conclusion. Du Bois is a next step, and I think that really builds on and transforms what, and I think establishes what a Marxist account of the Civil War has to be from you know from now on. And I think you know, and we can, we continue to, to develop those those accounts, but but that is. That's what Du Bois does, and that's why I wanted to end with Du Bois rather than Marx. Also, because nobody should have the last word, and certainly not Marx and Engels. The Civil War in the United States, edited yeah. by Andrew Zimmerman. Uh, it's a really fantastic volume. I encourage everyone to get a copy if they haven't already, and thank you for talking with us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The New Intellectuals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with actor Sudamva Deshpande, Popular educator Stephanie Brito, political theorist Jody Dean, and historian Christina Heatherton. See you soon.